You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and happily, I'm joined by Dave Roberts, who uh, I hope you guys remember from the last couple of times he's joined us. He's spent a decade and a half or so writing about the environment, um, environmental policy, the impact of environmental change on the economy and society. He has, and I strongly recommend you go find it, a fabulous podcast newsletter uh, called Volts, V-O-L-T-Z, that focuses on... LTS. LTS, excuse me. (laughs) That's, see, always good to have the actual source here. (laughs) Dave, welcome. Hi, hey there. So, um, very high on the list of of um, qualifications voters should be looking for when they talk to presidential candidates is like, what are you going to do about climate change? I mean, particularly coming out of this crazy summer of severe and intense weather, you know, young people understood this for a while. Um, So do most of the rest of us, but then there's the Republican base. I mean, what do you make of, 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 the complete lack of interest in this in half of the political world. Oh, I think it's just been completely subsumed into the larger culture war is all there is. I mean, I don't think they think about it much at all. I think it's just in a bucket in their heads with, you know, trans stuff and the deep state and all, you know, all, all the rest of it. I don't think they, I don't think they have any particular well-considered opinions about climate as such. It's just one more thing libs talk about. And so they reject, I don't think there's a lot more than that to it. I mean, I, I put myself through watching the Republican debate oh, last man. week, I know, but there was like, a, they, they had a video of a guy who says he represents young Republicans and it was a young man and he was a video question. And he said, look, basically I'm a Republican like you just give you the chance. Can you reassure us young voters that you have a plan? You're going to address climate change. And the response he got, they got back was no. <laughs> no. Why, why will, would we do yes, say, we're going to burn more oil. I will say, as cynical as I am, the fact that they all raise their hands to deny that it exists at all is pretty <laughs> pretty remarkable decades, decades on, even as we're sort of living through the book of Revelations. You know, it's uh, it's remarkable. You, you know, but I've been hearing – you know, young people are demanding that their Republican leaders take this seriously for 20 years now, uh, you know, and Republicans leaders never take it seriously. And the young Republicans never do squat about it. And it never has any political effect on Republicans at all. So, you know, wake me up when when young Republicans organize and stop voting for the Republicans who deny climate change costs them something electorally, then I will pay attention. Yeah. I, I, the young Republicans are still Republicans, but there are fewer of them. Young people generally are, are by huge numbers concerned about this problem. I, I mean, guess the ones who aren't are the young Republicans. How could you not, 
how could you not be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as a young person? It's, I think it's only, you know, it's just like cell phones or anything. You sort of like when you are, when you're already older, when they come into society, you know, you have a, you always have somewhat of a sort of synthetic attitude toward them. You don't, you know, they're not native to you, but young people these days have been seeing these disasters around them all their lives. They've been hearing about climate change all their lives. It's taught in schools. Like they don't, it's, 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 you know, it's just an intrinsic part of their world. And eventually, eventually on some time horizon, that's going to affect the, the Republican party. But you know, they've been, um, so, so many structures, so many ways our government is structured to empower the far right beyond their numbers. They've just been able to hold out, you know, hold out much longer than anybody <laughs> thought they could. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I'm, I have a suspension of, of, you know, I'm just going to wait and see. Um, I'll, I'll wait and see until there's some real damage because I think it's clear that these young Republicans are not going to persuade older Republican leaders to stop being crazy about this one thing. It's, as I said, it's all part of the basket of crazy. I really think the only thing that's going to shake anything loose uh, on any of these issues is a series of electoral losses. And so, you know, until that happens, I don't, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's happening. Um, let, let's stay with the, Madhouse for just a bit more before we dive into things that are real and that can improve our lives, ideas that actually matter, um, and the facts that support those ideas. Because that's, you know, that's what good government and good politics is. But then there's like Vivek Ramaswamy, all bluster, no facts, no ideas, just this patina of certainty. And I wonder what you, what you made of, of, his introduction to the world. Oh, just a classic, <clears throat> really just a classic type of guy, honestly, but it's specifically a classic type of, of Silicon Valley guy, just the, the, the carnival barker, just a, an endless series of very loud and confidently delivered, <laughs> you know, assertions that, that have a sort of glib logic to them if you've never thought about the issues for five minutes and know nothing about them. So, mm -hmm. you know, it appeals. And, and, and the wild thing to me has always been because I feel like anybody who has worked in a white collar professional job knows these kinds of people, right? Everyone has had a sort of boss or a middle manager in their company who's one of these types who's just a bullshitter, who just gets by on, you know, bluster and assertion and just moving too fast for you to fact check them, right? They yeah. just keep going yeah. on to new assertions. Everybody's been forced to deal with these kind of people. What's amazing to me, it's always been amazing to me, is how far they can get, how many people buy this. Like Elon Musk, now, I mean, it's like too good for parody. Elon Musk right? is now like, oh, this Vivek guy is starting to sound, I like the sound of this guy. Cause like that is the lingua franca of, of Silicon Valley, you know, startup culture is just bluster and BS from overconfident young dudes. And, uh, you know, he, he'll, he'll, he's not gonna, he's a flash in the pan, but it's, it's a sad commentary that he's getting anywhere that anyone's paying any attention. Well, I think that's all right. I had um, another thought, not a, not, not a thought that makes any of yours 
anything other than absolutely right. I just had an additional one. And that's that that VC world teaches um, uh, entrepreneurs about product market fit. Like you can have a great idea, but if the market doesn't yeah. want it, you're going nowhere. So you have to have your product fit a market need. And that's a completely valuable idea in business. And he's got that in his DNA. So he's created himself this time as a product that fits the market, which is the Republican primary voters. And that repulsive performance he put on is a perfect example of what they actually want. It fit. That's why he's doing well. That product fits that market. And it says it says something about him, but it also says something absolutely horrendous about what the MAGA base is. Oh, sure. I agree completely. I mean, in a sense, Trump is the same way, right? Like Trump has no core. He has no real beliefs beyond his own ego. Like he doesn't care about any of these things, but he's, but he's a very fine tuned weather vane. He knows what gets applause. What he wants is applause. And he knows, you know, so he's been, so he went out and felt out what gets applause from the Republican base and everything you see from Trump today is the result of that process of him being shaped by the Republican base. So that is yeah. what they want. They want glib, you know, counterintuitive. The establishment is bad. The elites are bad. You know, the sort of faux populism. Uh, that's what they want and it's what they fall for. I mean, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a charismatic preachers, you know, in the, in the, in the, uh, conservative religious community, like, yeah. or it's like, uh, if anyone's ever seen the music man, you know, remember the old play, the music man, the sure. guy comes to town, yeah, and he's yeah. singing, he's singing songs and he's got his good rap, you know, and he's, yeah. and he's, yeah. he sells them on a moral panic about pool and the kids, yeah. and, you know, are playing pool and he's got this, he's got this, you know, hoax of a solution. Like it's a very well-worn, it's a very well understood type in U.S life but it is exactly i mean if you train this group of people over decades not to trust any of the major institutions that are designed to separate truth from nonsense then they're at sea they got nothing to go on but charisma right they got nothing to go on but bs and so they follow whoever's got the best you know whoever's got the best rap yeah well, Ron DeSantis didn't have the best trip. I think he actually I know, that's said why he's that failing. On day one, they're going to invade Mexico. I know. Well, this is, I mean, Ron Santis made, made the most basic mistake you can make about the Republican base, which is he thought maybe they cared about <clears throat> policy. Something. Like he thought maybe they cared about what you actually do and the results you actually get. They don't care about that it's all about the rap it's all about the charisma and he's got none of that so he's so confused he's like i'm doing what i thought you wanted like i'm i'm you know i'm persecuting lgbtq people you know i'm i'm, yeah. I'm sending teachers fleeing the state i'm i'm making libs cry every day like why do, why won't you love me and he just doesn't get like they don't care about the world they care about the TV screen. They care about how good is this on TV, and he's just not very good. No, he smiled. It was a terrifying sight. Um, <laughs> so, so just putting it sort of it, when they talked about all of these things, that this bluster and nonsense, I just had this image of chopping down the last tree on Easter Island, <laughs> you know, and that whole culture going extinct. I, like if we were in their hands, that would be us. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that everybody should absorb at this point is there is no level of weather disasters. There's no there's no level of obvious sort of apocalypse. There's no level of floods and and storms and heat waves that are going to break this fever on their own. Like once you're in that epistemic bubble, once you're bubbled up, no amount of evidence is going to evidence doesn't speak for itself, right? You've got to have somebody in your ear telling you the story of what the evidence means and all the people they have in their ear are, are, are BSing them. So there's no, the weather is not going to do that work for us. No, just more fossil fuels. That's all they want. All right. Well, let's talk, let's talk about something that's more interesting than the current Republican party (laughs) um, and maybe less dangerous. Um, you took some time. You went to Australia. Um, and I, I, what brought you there? What did you learn when you were there? I mean, I, you know, they're doing interesting things, too. Really, really, really fascinating moment Australia is in right now. So, though, you know, as as your listeners may or may not know, they have suffered under a decade of conservative <laughs> leadership there in Australia to all the predictable Results and just finally a labor, you know, their sort of center left party, the labor party won, uh, won the government, um, a couple of years ago. So there's a, the big question now is what are they going to do on climate? How big are they going to go on climate? And so the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act obviously sent huge reverberations around the world. Like it was a big signal. The U.S went big. What are you going to do? So what happened is the big electrical union there, the ETU, the electrical trade union, brought brought me over to Australia to talk to policymakers and, and members of parliament and media and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was there for two weeks, talked, 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 talked to the point I lost my voice <coughs> about <coughs> the U.S., IRA and what it meant and how it came about and what it says for Australia. So they're at a real decision point and they're in a real interesting position too because they are, they are, their economy is almost entirely dependent on dirty exports, you know, coal. They're a mining economy. Coal, yeah, coal, natural gas, and iron ore. And so in a sense, they're, in a bad place climate wise, cause as you know, they're having bushfires and like climate is not going to be kind to Australia. But, on, but, but, you know, seen from a different angle, they have an enormous opportunity. Like they could become the foundry of the clean energy economy because they have, they are a top five producer of all the critical minerals that are needed for batteries and solar panels and all the rest. And oh, right now yeah, they just, have like lithium and nickel and yeah, all that, yeah, all that yeah, stuff. And right yeah. now they're just digging it up. And shipping it to China, and then China processes it and makes it into 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 materials and products, and then they buy it back from China. That's what you know. That's what everybody's doing. So it would it would not be hard for Australia, and I think this is what the Labor Party has their eye on for Australia to just move up that value chain and start doing like if they just use their copious renewable energy, they have more wind and solar per capita than I think any other country in the world. Like they are extraordinarily blessed with renewable energy. Just use that to process the iron ore 
then so that people can make green steel out of it, that alone would be a huge export economy uh, opportunity. So, so Australia is both in severe danger from climate change and has a huge opportunity in front of it. And the question is, can it shake off the center left's sort of neoliberal hangover? It's aversion to industrial policy. It's an aversion to spending money, to making big public investments. So what I was over there saying is the U.S., the Biden administration is, has closed the book on neoliberalism. They are explicit about it. The era of sort of reflexive free trade, free market. That's, that's over now. China's not playing by those rules. We can't play either. We need to actively shape our place in the new economy, the new clean energy economy. And every other country needs to do the same. So like the EU followed up the IRA with a big package of its own. Japan followed up with a big package of its own. Canada has like a hundred billion dollar package. It recently announced. So like get on the bus or get run over. Like that's what I, that's what I was over there saying. And I felt like I was pushing on an open door. I felt like they're open to it. So I think it's going to be a really interesting time to watch Australia in the next few months. Uh, well, you, there were three things in what you just said that I think I want to dig in deeper because all three of them are enormous. Um, and, and for people who don't live in, in the conversations that you're having all the time. I don't think they're easy to get your head around. One was just the idea that the Inflation Reduction Act, something that we did in the U.S., has actually sparked global change. Oh, huge. I really think people, you cannot underestimate, like, it's, it's, it's a sign of a bizarre situation because if you do polls in the U.S., our, Information economy is so broken. Our system of media is so broken that most Americans haven't heard about the Inflation Reduction Act. Most Americans don't understand at all what it is or its its implications. But overseas, policymakers in other countries, it was huge. It cannot be overstated. I heard Chris Bowen, Australia's current energy minister say that the IRA is the biggest thing that has ever happened for climate change, including the Paris agreement. Okay. See, that's pretty, that's pretty spectacular. I mean, a Americans should know that, but, but that, that it was a catalyst. And I think it in part, maybe by design, although I think maybe by accident, by design, the nature of the IRA is at least is it the, the piece that's, involving uh, climate is a pile of incentives, mm-hmm. right? It's a pile of economic incentives to change uh, behavior, to produce uh, and use clean energy. And those incentives then created um, a real competitive landscape for the rest of the world. They were going to get left behind if they didn't do something. So I, I think that's a really remarkable accomplishment. Yeah, and and one, if I could just get slightly more specific about it, because I think this is really interesting, too, is the IRA is, if you look at where the money went, you're right, it's a big pile of incentives. If you look at where the money went, most of it went to electrification. Yes. And this is a new thing, well, not new, but relatively new thing in climate world, which is instead of just giving money to big companies to do other 
you know, build different kinds of power plants or whatever, all of which is relatively distant from the ordinary citizen. Electrification of households and small businesses is a way to directly and measurably save people money, especially in Australia, because given how cheap their rooftop solar is and how blessed they are with renewable energy. This is a way of putting people first in climate policy and having people benefit from it in ways they can see and measure as the as the front edge of climate policy and that is a political revolution right this is no longer big abstract systems stuff this is like your household your appliances your vehicle you are going to save money every year when you electrify your life and and, and so you can lead with that and that gets you the political license the social license to do other big things coming in behind that and i think australia heard that message too yeah i mean it's it's absolutely um i don't know if it was on purpose but it's profound and it's making you know it was on purpose i mean i talked to uh i talked to while i was over there i talked to saul griffith who is um he's uh, one of the leaders uh he started helped to start electrify america which was a big player in the development of ira and now he's over there and he started rewiring um Australia, and he's doing the same thing over there. But one of the things he said was, this is the first big climate bill that he's aware of in the world <clears throat> where the engineers, <clears throat> the engineers and the people who understand real world <coughs> systems got the yep. first crack at it instead of the lawyers and the economists, right? So like, these are people who I listened understood. to your podcast on this, and I recommend everybody should listen to it. It was fabulous where the two of you talked about these ideas it's really um, it's 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 really well designed and it even like the 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 it's well designed and that design more or less survived joe manchin like yeah. the good design made it through to the end yeah yeah i think that's fabulous i mean it you know um in part because it's a technical question um th- where where the uh um They didn't really, the things they cared about, the politicians cared about, were were not the same things the engineers cared about. So they weren't arguing about those things. (laughs) Right? Right. So they just left it alone. Yes, Manchin just basically didn't notice or didn't pay much attention to the bulk of the bill. There were just a few sort of high-profile symbolic things that he cared about, like the Mountain Valley Pipeline and and stuff like that. And and if you give him that, then the rest of it sort of slides in on the back of that stuff. I mean, it was really – it's a it was miraculous how – how well it worked given the total dysfunction of the U.S. political system. Yeah, I don't know that our political system is as dysfunctional as – as people say, I mean, that Congress did Congress, the most broken branch of government, did amazing things in, in the 117th Congress. Stuff I that's going to matter. I, for I years. wouldn't want to take from that the lesson that we're not dysfunctional. I think it's miraculous that it happened. It's in it. And I give all credit to, to Democrats in Congress and to Joe Biden for yep. engineering as big the stuff they did. Given the constraints, but yep. let's not forget the constraints are still ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's very hard to get something done in a country this big. Um, and with a Congress that messed up. And the reason the IRA is a big pile of incentives and not a more fleshed out policy that has some regulatory and 
standards, some teeth, some, you know, some sticks along with the carrots. That's all because it had to go through budget reconciliation. And that's all because of the filibuster, which is one of those ridiculous restrictions. So it's not like, it's not like this was a policy choice just to make it a big pile of incentives. It's just that's the only thing that could squeeze through the keyhole of (laughs) that the legislation can get through these days. But it turns out, um, with enough money, those incentives are more powerful than a whole bunch of regulatory stuff. Well, I think ideally you would use both arms of the scissors, right? Like, ideally they both complement one another. Uh, And so if you you can't use regulations or performance standards, you just have to pile on a lot more money (laughs) and kind of hope for the best. I mean, it's not ideal, but it's definitely going to get things moving. And boy, has it got things moving. Um, yes, this was my other message to Australia, which is, this is not theoretical. In the year since IRA passed, there have been $270 billion worth of announcements in new manufacturing facilities, new battery factories, solar panel factories. Like, like investment is flooding into the country Uh uh in response to this bill in a way that made Morgan Stanley has sort of has has had to bump up their estimate of US GDP growth twice yeah. since IRA passed and this and these are and these are investments in precisely in the areas of the country that were hollowed out by by free trade globalism, right? In the South and Midwest, it's precisely the areas of the country that are sort of festering and getting angry and being pulled in a reactionary direction. And this is by design. I think if you talk to Biden people behind the scenes, they'll say, like, we're worried about American democracy. Like, something's got to be done for these parts of the country. And so now, like, for instance, First Solar just announced a $1.2 billion facility in Louisiana. That is the biggest yeah. single investment in that state's history. Just so everybody who's listening understands, this isn't government money. This is private capital. Yeah, it's that's fully in private capital of as incentives. designed. Yep. Yep. So so let's go to t- that. So that that was one of those big things you talked about, just the enormous global impact of IRA. The other is the Stunningly big economic changes, structural economic changes that we are now talking about in the world. And, and you, you laid that out a little bit when you were talking about how Australia might change its entire approach to its global economic footprint by becoming the world's foundry, for example. It's a, it's a restructuring of national economies. In, in a very different kind of environment than the one we've had. And that's also profound. Profound and profoundly, um, what's the word? Difficult to predict. Like they, like they are, there are huge, huge changes. And these are not going to just be economic, you know, global economic changes. Along with those are going to come geopolitical changes and who has power and who has influence. And we, cannot, I think, begin to fathom what that's going to look like in like 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's just going to be some really, and, and it's not all going to be pretty either. You know, like I, I, I think, I think we, we shouldn't be promising like a clean energy utopia, like maybe in, you know, 60 years we'll get there, but there's a lot of turmoil between here and there as, as countries, you know, wrestle with their place in this new, 
world. Like we just, you know, this whole, the whole Russia, Ukraine, gas to Europe, mm-hmm. that whole episode really galvanized, I think, also the world's politicians. Like a lot of what got Ira over the finish line is, is not about climate. It's about fear of China. It's about fear of China dominating the supply chains of all these materials that we're all going to be using in the clean energy economy. So the, so part of what Ira is is an attempt to sort of onshore and friendshore a supply chain for these things, which is a huge, huge undertaking and is going to really shift power balances and power relationships and the flow of global trade. I mean, in ways that we can only just guess how that's all going to play out. Yeah. IRA and the chips and science act, both motivated by the same thing. I think, um, I think what we can say is that they, they're really um, speaking just now from the perspective of, is it good for the United States? I think these things do um, while there is an enormous risk in changing, uh, uh, global patterns of energy consumption and energy production. Um, uh, I think the U.S. is in, in pretty good place, given what we've done. Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, still, despite decades of neoliberalism, are still world leaders in innovation and in our higher education system and in our labs and in our startups. Like, we are in a great position to do this. And I would just say, I feel like this is an under-discussed aspect of all this is, you know, we just got through a period where we're all freaked out by inflation. And I think people don't un- people don't understand what a huge part of inflation is energy prices by which i mean fossil fuel prices mm-hmm. are fluctuate fluctuate wildly based on you know geopolitical events based on you know when this or that field is tapped out or this or that field is tapped basically fossil fuel prices fluctuate wildly by nature and we're all just used to riding that roller coaster. We just think of that as like the way it is, you know, that the economy goes boom and bust periodically. We have these recessions periodically that are driven in large part by oil crises. What is it going to look like when we get off that roller coaster and onto clean energy, which is stable? When you buy a solar panel, you are effectively paying for 25 years of energy right there. And you know exactly what your yearly you know what the cost of that is 25 years out so there goes the roller coaster right, All right. now you're on I a need stable to dive into that more with you you said this stable the, declining uh, and it's, so that's true at the micro level at the household yeah. level yeah. and it's also true at the national level i really think we have not economists have not fully internalized that yet what the, the revolution that's going to come with getting off the fossil fuel roller coaster onto a more stable predictable set of energy technologies yeah, the way you guys talked about this idea, and I loved it, was the mm-hmm. substitution of finance for fuel. Yes, yes. So talk about that, because that's that's really what you're talking about. It's it's a profound idea, right? So, uh, and, and this is all this is all credit to Saul. You know, he's he's, you know, the analogy I I, I like to use, which I think helps it helps it click for people. Because if you tell people like, you know, get off your fossil fuel furnace and your fossil fuel stove and your fossil fuel car and get on to clean energy, they will tell you, well, those things are expensive up front, right? The upfront 
cost of a solar panel is high, even though if you amortize it out over the lifetime, you're going to save money. There's still that upfront cost barrier. And so the analogy I like to use is, you know, in the early 20th century, um, we decided home ownership was important and would bring stability and political stability to the middle class. But homes are quite expensive upfront, right? So, so we created financing tools, namely the 30 year fixed mortgage. Like that is, that is, that did not fall on a tablet out of heaven. We invented that so that we could get people access to homes and it worked like gangbusters, right? It worked yeah. to spread home ownership throughout the middle class. And so it's the same thing here. If we want to get people off the fossil fuel roller coaster onto the stability of, um, clean energy, we need tools that do that upfront financing. And there's a million different ways you could do that with public money or public private partnerships. There's a million different, um, you know, people should be getting creative about that. But once you finance the solar panel, then your energy costs are locked in and predictable for 25 years. And that is at a household level, I think, difficult to, to overstate what a revolution that is not to have your basically your energy costs be such a huge portion of your um, income for one thing and unpredictable and fluctuating in a way that makes it very difficult to plan so instead yeah, of buying fuel every year you're just paying off the financing every year which is 100 yep. percent more predictable um the only thing that uh i want to add is that um your energy costs in um in some states, particularly regulated states like mine in Illinois, um, where the, where this annual fluctuation is, is the subject of, Hey, can I have a rate hike through the legislature? It's yeah. also one of the biggest, um, causes of political corruption in states yeah. across the country. Yep. Yep. So it, 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 it's a cleanup in many ways. Yes, and this is and, and and this is why this is sort of an underappreciated aspect of why there's a lot of political resistance to wind and solar because it, in a sense, it just kind of takes that whole fossil fuel nest of corruption and backroom dealing off the table and makes everything quite transparent and upfront. Like you finance it upfront and then the costs are what they are. And that's, um, you know, that takes away a lot of opportunities for political, for political corruption, as you say. Yeah. And so the, the, the way they're pitching it in Australia is right now you have a petrol bill, right? Your gasoline for your car, you have a gas bill to heat your home and you have an electricity bill. We're going to eliminate the petrol bill entirely, eliminate the gas bill entirely, and reduce the electrical bill. That is the promise to Australian citizens. And that is political dynamite right there. Never mind all the rest of it. Just that alone is political dynamite. Uh, it's it's so exciting. And I know people experienced this summer's extreme weather with terror um, I mean, I, the, my last show day, I had a fabulous meteorologist. We spent a whole hour and he walked us through all, all of the events going on around the planet and talked about them in a really fascinating way. It's and hard it, to fit them all in your head at this point. There's so much going on. Right. And, and it leaves you terrified. But, but what you're talking about 
I mean, one of the things he said was, look, humans are very adaptable. There's a plenty of reason for optimism now that we are taking these steps that, you know, we're going to survive and we'll be okay, but we, we won't do it fast enough so that we don't, so that we are free from having to mitigate the damage we've already caused. And there's going to be some of that. And, and, you know, New York, it's going to be really expensive when the, when the ocean rises to protect Manhattan, but it can be done. It's going to be maybe impossible to protect Miami because the water comes up from underneath. So there are mitigation that's going to have to happen. Yeah. You can adapt to a new, you can adapt to a new set point, a new temperature. What I don't think we can adapt to is a perpetually moving target, right? What I don't think we can adapt to is conditions that are continuously changing, right? That is why we have this, you know, that's why the number one job is stopping the rise in global temperature. We've got to yep. get to some set point and then we can set about adapting to it. But we, we can't just chase, you know, things are changing, you know, climactically faster than they ever have in the history of our species. We're just not, no matter how clever we are and rich we are, we're just not right. going to be capable of Water chasing a perpetually changing topic, right? Like it rains yep. Yep. different places every yep. decade, you know, like yep. rain yep. patterns are changing. How do you do agriculture in those circumstances? Yep. You know, yep. it's just going to be, so we've got to get to net zero as soon as possible. And then we can like adapt to our circumstances, but we right, can't go. take our eyes off the ball. We've been very big picture. I want to go small for a minute because the Biden administration announced, um, I don't know, 1.2 billion in projects to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you what you know about this and whether this is something that we, think can work what's do, do we are there machines that will take the uh you know the uh greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere um, yeah, is this-, this is uh, i mean i am vigorously ambivalent about this <laughs> about this whole <laughs> about this whole area i mean on on the one hand there's all Right. What matters is the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that is already too high. Right. Yeah. So in a sense, even if we cut emissions to zero tomorrow, <coughs> there's already too much up there. And so on some time horizon, we're going to have to suck some out. Right. Like this is what all the models say. Yep. And, and even and we're not going to be able to reduce CO2 emissions to absolute zero. There's going to be areas where you can't squeeze it all out, some parts of agriculture, et cetera. So even just to get to net zero emissions, we're going to have to suck some out. So I take, you know, I take people's um, when they preach about this, I take them seriously. We do need to develop this technology on in the big picture. However, in the short term, in the proximate term, it's very clear that oil and gas companies are using this as one mechanism of delay, right? They I want see. So so there's it's so, the filter on the cigarette. I oh, mean, we got a we put a filter of, on the cigarette. No most problem. of the carbon that is being captured by these machines today no. is going and they're taking it and pumping it down into oil fields 
to get more oil out, yeah. right? It's called enhanced oil recovery. That's what yeah. most of the captured CO2 is doing these days is, is, is pumping more oil out. So I think, you know, on the one hand, yes, we need to develop these technologies. But on the other hand, yes, we have to be incredibly vigilant because what the oil companies want is for capturing and burying carbon to become a license for them to continue producing, yeah. right? That's what they yeah. want. Yeah. Nobody yeah. in the climate world wants that. And nobody who's pushing these policies in climate world, they all say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we want. We've got to continue mitigating. We've got to continue reducing emissions. But that's not how the oil and gas companies see it. The oil and gas companies are very clearly trying to use this as an excuse to continue business as usual. And so we've got to very be politically vigilant about yeah. that. All right, one more. Um, for years... Every time uh, Commonwealth Edison in Illinois goes for a rate increase, and this is true in state after state, they say, yeah, we're doing this. We're investing in smart grid, and it's going to make everything <laughs> more efficient, and it's going to make everything cheaper, and it just hasn't done it. And Like, what's with our grid system? If we're going to electrify everything, don't we have to think a little bit differently about the grid and how it works? Oh, oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I think the grid is not a problem. It is the problem. Like if electrification is the primary tool of decarbonization and decarbonization is the most important thing we're doing in the world today, that means fixing the grid, making the grid work. Cause we're going to, if we electrify everything, we're going to two to three times, we're going to have two to three times the amount of electricity demand, right? So yeah. we're going to be asking two to three times more of the grid and the grid is already a bit of a mess as you're as you're pointing out so this is the problem and it's just not we're not making it a national priority like we should and the way we run the grid is just dysfunctional in so many ways you know the one of the big ones which is getting a lot of attention these days is just almost impossible to build new transmission lines all these utilities right they don't want to build big interregional or interstate transmission lines because the effect of that would be to reduce demand for their power in their in their in their territory, right? So, in so many ways, power utilities their incentives are directly counter to the public good. I mean, and, and as long as that's true, you just can't take hardly anything they say seriously, right? I'm sure they're going to put smart meters on some houses, but the real smart grid, you know, if you really made every house smart and every appliance smart and every car smart, and they were all working in concert on the grid, the net effect of that would be to reduce demand for new infrastructure and new utility power, which would be reducing the utilities profits, right? So, so yeah. we've got to, this is the Gordian knot of our time. We've got to figure out some way of fixing power utilities and doing more centralized planning of transmission and transmission infrastructure and more um, moving to distributed energy resources, what are called DERs, the stuff at the sort of household and small business and local community level to get that resilience that you get when you're, when your community is creating and sharing its own power. Like all of the, all of the ways we need to move in the big, in the big picture wise are counter to current utilities profit <laughs> motives. And that's yeah, just well, like, that is the problem of our time. And it's just, now I know what I'm going to talk to you about next time we're together. 
<laughs> I saved, saved <laughs> it for we can talk about the grid. We can talk about the grid forever. We talk yep. about the grid forever. It is the electrification <clears throat> and getting the grid prepared for the electrification demand that's coming is the problem of our time. All right. Well, let's let's uh, since we've run out of time this time, let's <laughs> set up soon. Come back and let's have that conversation All right. because Sounds it's good enormously, up. as you say, enormously important. Dave, I I love when we get a chance to catch up. I always learn. Um, an enormous amount, and it's uh, really the most important stuff we're doing right now. Well, so thank you for having you. me on. I appreciate you it. Bet. You bet. All right, everybody. That was Dave Roberts. Please go uh, get to his podcast, V-O-L-T-S. S, V-O-L-T-S. Fabulous. Um, and you can get there through Substack and other ways. Um, we're going to take a break for the news, and when we come back, Michael Tomaski from the New Republic joins me, and that also will be fabulous. Stay tuned.